Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. New Testament Christians admit inadequacy. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did anybody get caught up in watching all this political mumbo-jumbo the last few months? If it had not been for Fox News, I would have died. <laughs> there are more liberals in the national media than you can stir up with a stick. And, and, and I just, I, I listen to all these, you know, now we've got a live report from here and a live report from there, and we've got a comment from this person, a comment from that person. But, you know, I, I love to watch politics because there's nothing like a liar on television. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I'll fight for you. And I'm going to fight you if you don't do it my way. <laughs> I, I care about you. If you'll vote for me, we'll have the best four years of prosperity and peace this nation has ever known. You know, I, I'm just waiting for the politician that gets up and says, we're in a world of hurt, and I am poor in spirit. You, you know, you just don't find the concept of leadership in America today to be one of humility. It, it takes people aback, whether you voted, whoever you voted for, it takes people uh, back a little bit because George Bush doesn't come out arrogant. He doesn't look cocky. And I heard one guy, he doesn't look presidential. Well, what does presidential look like? Bill Clinton on the cover of Esquire? Lyndon Johnson showing us his scar from his gallbladder surgery? Is that what presidential looks like? Give me a break. I want to tell you something, folks. The, the world says that leadership is pushy. God says that leadership is humility. And you lead by humility. And this is what Jesus is getting to. Jesus is not giving us a gimmick. He's not giving us a, a campaign promise. He's not giving us a, a locker room speech so we go out there and sick them. What Jesus is doing here is he's turning our thinking around. In fact, if you want to understand the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are the reverse of everything the world thinks. Whatever the world is thinking, you reverse it, and that's what the Beatitudes are. Because these verses are given to us to tell us that if you want blessings, if you want God's hand on your life, if you want power for living, then it comes by being poor in spirit, to those who mourn, to those who are gentle, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to the merciful, to the pure in heart, to the peacemakers, to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Read this quote with me by A.W. Tozer. In the world of men we find nothing approaching the virtues of which Jesus spoke in the opening words of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Instead of poverty of spirit, we find the rankest kind of pride Instead of mourners, we find pleasure seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. Instead of hunger after righteousness, we hear men saying, I am rich and increase in goods and have need of nothing. Instead of purity of heart, corrupt imaginations. Instead of peacemakers, we find men quarrelsome and resentful. Instead of rejoicing in mistreatment, we find them fighting back with every weapon at their command. Now let's look at the background of the word blessed again. We talked about it a little bit this morning. But in verse, verses 3 through 6, we see that the blessed are people that admit they are spiritually inadequate. Spiritually inadequate. If I'm going to be blessed, I have to admit that I'm spiritually inadequate, that I can't do it. But then he comes out, and in many ways, verses 7 through 12, tell us that there are manifestations in the life of those who admit that they're spiritually inadequate. In other words, then internal admission leads to external evidences. These are the distinguishing characteristics of saved people. This is a description of what saved people are like. And remember the word blessed? 
satisfied, believing in sovereignty, security, and the sufficiency of God. When I'm blessed, I'm satisfied. I have a satisfied life. I have a secure life. I believe in satisfaction provided by God. It is a translated happy oftentimes that is, and our word for happiness is so weak compared to what this word means when it comes to happiness. It cannot be reduced to just, ha, 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 I'm happy. Everybody, is everybody happy? What do you mean? What do you mean by happy? Because you see, we tie happiness to circumstances. And we tie happiness to feelings. We think if we can be healthy enough and wealthy enough, and if we can have enough influence and get everything we want, we'll be happy. How many stories have we heard about people who have won the lottery or won the publisher's clearinghouse and they end up miserable because all those relatives they don't like start showing up at their house wanting a piece of the action? Money has never made anybody happy. It may make your misery more comfortable, but it doesn't make you happy. I'm not any happier today than I was when I was making $25 a week. Money has not done anything to change whether or not I'm... Happiness is what's on the inside. It's not what I can buy or what I can have. or, or any, That's not where happiness is found. And yet this world tells us that that's where happiness is found. But this happiness is a godlike quality and a godlike character. Let me give you another definition for blessed or for happy. It is fundamentally to be approved of by God. It is fundamentally to be approved of or to find approval and acceptance. Now, we are full of people in this world who are seeking approval. They've got poor self-image and, and they've got low self-esteem and, and they're trying to find approval and acceptance and they want somebody to love them and they want somebody to acknowledge them. They just, they just want somebody to say they care that they're even alive. Jesus says, I want to bless you and show you that you have my approval, my acceptance. It describes our inner condition. Now let's look at the principles behind a blessed life. And there are a couple here. These are some principles you have to understand if you're going to have a blessed life, if you're going to be happy, if you're going to have that sense of approval, if you're going to understand the condition in which God wants you to live. Number one, you cannot do this on your own. I'm going to work harder to be poor in spirit. I'm going, to, I'm, going to make a, I'm going to make the good old college try to be poor in spirit. You can't do this on your own. This is impossible in the flesh. Jesus never laid out these beatitudes and said, try to do these the best you can. You can't do it. You have to admit inadequacy. You can't live this out. In fact, the only people that ever reach to the level of the beatitudes are those who realize, I can't reach this level. I can't be this way. This is impossible for me. And I want to tell you something. As a type A personality, this is hard for me. Because type A is, I can fix it, I can make it happen, I can work, I can drive it home, I will get there. And God says, no you won't. You're never going to get there. And try as hard as I might, I can never on my own get to the point of understanding that I can arrive at all of this by some system or some process. Now, the basis is in the law. And, and the key to this is understanding the law was given in the Old Testament not so that Israel could walk around and say, we've fulfilled all the law. We're the only people on the earth, God's chosen people, and we have fulfilled all the commandments and all the requirements of the law. Does everybody here understand that, that the Israelites did not fulfill the law? In fact, do you remember at the very moment that God was giving them the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, they were in the valley breaking every law they were given. What it says is man cannot fulfill the law. Man was never intended to fulfill the law. You say, well, if somebody keeps the law, they can be saved. You can't keep all the law. It's impossible for you to keep the law. Now, I want to take you to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. 
And, and I want to read this out of the Living Bible, or as we used to call it in seminary, the dying heresy. I want to read it out of the Living Bible because I want you to get the, the but I want you to follow along with it in whatever translation you're using. Romans chapter 3. Because what this tells us is that the standard of righteousness that God has set cannot be achieved by me working and trying. It, I don't care if you're type A, type B, or you're flunking in whatever type you are. You, you can't achieve this. Romans 3.20, and I'm going to read out of the Living Bible. Now do you see it? No one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what the law commands. For the more we know God's laws, the clearer it becomes that we aren't obeying them. His laws serve only to make us see that we are sinners. That is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to show you that you're unrighteous and that you're a sinner, not that you can breach the level of the law. That's the only reason for it. Paul says in verse 21, But now, by the way, is, if Layman Strauss were here, he would say you need to go through your Bible and circle all the but nows. Because there are a lot of but nows that, where God says, this is the way it is, but now something's changed. But now God has shown us a different way to heaven, not by being good enough and trying to keep his laws, but by a new way, though not new really, for the Scripture told about it long ago. Now God says he will accept and acquit us, declare us not guilty if we trust Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And we all can be saved in this same way by coming to Christ no matter who we are or what we've been like. Here's the principle. The law does not justify. The law condemns. The law does not justify. The law condemns. You see, this was a problem with the rich ruler. We call him the rich young ruler. You know why we call him the rich young ruler, don't you? Because he ran. I see older people in my neighborhood running, not very fast, but they're running. He came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, that's real simple. Keep the commandments. Which ones? He said, well, I'll tell you what you've got to do, son. You've got to have an estate sale, take everything you make, and give it to the poor. And the rich ruler says, can we get a second opinion on that? You see, the rich ruler's problem was not money. The rich ruler's problem was self-sufficiency. He thought that he could, in and of himself, either buy or work his way into the presence of God. That he could find favor with God by something he did in his flesh. And so Jesus tells him, and the rich young ruler says, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible. And you will meet people and you will share Christ with people that are trying to get to heaven, that are working to heaven. They're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong because with man it's impossible to be saved on your own. You can't do it. The problem with this man was his self-sufficiency. And you see... We want to save ourselves because that's the way culture tells us we're supposed to think. If you work hard, you get a promotion. If you work hard, you get a raise. If you have good grades, you get a scholarship. If you succeed, you're recognized and rewarded. If you're famous, you get doors open for you. I mean, society tells us, do for yourself and there will be rewards and results to come. Jesus says, admit you can't do anything for yourself and there will be rewards that come. It is contrary to the way we think. Now look at the quote by Max Licato. God doesn't save us because of what we've done. Only a puny God could be bought with tithes. Only an egotistical God would be impressed with our pain. Only a temperamental God could be satisfied with sacrifices. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidder. And only a great God does for his children what they cannot do for themselves. Look down at verse 20 of Matthew 5. 
Verse 20 of Matthew 5. If anybody had their act together on the surface, it was the Pharisees. Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, folks, listen to me. There are going to be a lot of people that have kept the rules, that have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's, that are going to end up in hell. Because it's not in keeping rules that you get saved. It's not, you know, there are going to be people that are going to be surprised that they missed heaven because they never wore makeup, they never went to movies, they, ne they never did anything, they never ate out on Sundays. I mean, they kept all these man-made rules. And they thought that made them spiritual. The Pharisees didn't eat out on Sunday. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't make it. What we want to do is we want to be able to earn our way, buy our way, serve our way, give our way into heaven. I've done so much, Lord. Surely you owe me this. He said, uh-uh. I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you a thing. So look at the second thing. Only desperate people can discover the blessed life. You can't do it on your own, and only the desperate can discover the blessed life. You have to be empty if you're going to be filled. The Bible is full of paradoxes. It's full of things that seem contradictory. And one of these days, Lord willing, I'll do a series on this. But if you ever looked at the Bible and see what it says, it says that you live by dying. When I die to myself, I can live to God. The Scriptures say you gain by losing. It says that you rule by serving. Now that doesn't make any sense to us. It says that you give, and when you give, God blesses you and gives back. It's contrary to the way man thinks. God has a paradoxical way of thinking. It runs against... In fact, the narrow, road is, the narrow road is not over here to the side and the wide road is over here. If you study the concept of the narrow road, the narrow road runs right down the middle of the broad road. If you read it and study it, when Jesus is talking about the narrow road, he's talking about you staying in a small lane that goes right down the middle of people that are flying by you in every direction on this wide path. You're not off to the side unaffected by them. You're not off to the side ignorant of what's going on around you in the middle of all the distractions and all the temptations and all the pressure and all the influence that says, hey, get over here, it's a lot more room. You're walking a narrow path. And all around you, people are saying, get off of that. Come out here with us. Play by our rules. Live by our systems. Do it our way. And God says, stay on the path that's right down the middle that goes against the grain of the wide road. You're going in the opposite direction with all the traffic around you going crazy, but you keep moving. Look at the quote by C.S. Lewis. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else. That's a key phrase in that quote. I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object it is better to forget about yourself altogether. Martin Luther said, I am an empty vessel. I want to tell you something, folks. The greatest people I've ever met have never known they were great people. They've never known it. And even if they realized it, there was never an air about them that they were great. I, I, you know, I, I just look back over my life and I look at the, the people that, that I've been able to just 
get in the shadow and just watch them and watch how they are around the people around them. Billy Graham is great because he's humble. Billy Graham is great because at 82 years of age, he's still amazed that God chose him. When Billy Graham walks into a room, he doesn't strut into a room and say, hey, hey, I need a little attention here. I preach to hundreds of millions of people. What have you done lately? It's not his approach. And some of the greatest people I've ever met are the people that work around Billy Graham who work quietly in the shadows. Their names never make the newspaper. They're never reported on when they're in the hospital. But they're the ones that have stayed around great men and served them. There's something about the attitude of the servant. One of the reasons I think T.W. Wilson's a great man is because he was a very successful pastor on his own and a very successful evangelist, and he decided to go and become a nobody from the world's point of view in the Billy Graham organization and to serve Billy Graham for almost 50 years. Nobody knows who T.W. Wilson is, but I want to tell you something. If you ever want to talk to Billy Graham, you better know who T.W. Wilson is because he's the one that opens the doors. And he's a humble man. I sat in his office the day after that worldwide telecast to hundreds of millions of people, and he was in awe that God would use them. And when I said, well, I know I've taken up too much of your time, I was there two and a half hours, I said, I, I've, I've taken too much time, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't mean for this to go this long. Here's what he said to me. This man who has met every president since Eisenhower the man who has made more suggestions than I can even begin to tell you, he leans over his desk and says, before you leave, can I pray for you? Now, I want to tell you something. That got my attention. But you see, great people never think they're better than anybody else. And one of the travesties to me of ministry in the 20th century and into the 21st century is we got a lot of guys in ministry that think they're better than other people. And you never bless people and you never become what God wants you to be if you think I'm better than somebody else. I, I mean, I'm, I, I am truly, truly amazed of what I'm going to do this next week because I know me. I mean, you know, and I'm not going to stand up there going, boy, I tell you what, these guys are sure lucky to hear me because I'm going to know who they could hear. And when I look at who they could hear and the fact that they got to listen to me, I'm wondering, why did you pay money to go to this one? Why didn't you go to the other one where you could have heard him? Because if I was you, I would have gone to hear him. I wouldn't have stayed to hear me. But you see, if we're going to be used of God then we have to be people that realize that apart from him, we are nothing. John 15, 5 says, Apart from me, you can do a few things. That's not what it says. What Bible have you got? <laughs> it says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, that applies to preachers as well as people in the pew. That word nothing means a zero with the rim kicked off. You can do absolutely zilch apart from God. And whatever you do apart from God is an absolute failure, no matter how man grades it. If it's apart from God, it fails. Ultimately, eternally, it's a failure. It's wood, hay, and stubble. It never works. Now, I don't know why I got off on that, but the path to the blessed life, number one, is a necessary admission. A necessary admission. Notice he says the poor in spirit. The word means abject poverty. It means to crouch or to cower. Now, the Greeks had two different words here. They had a word that meant a person who lives hand to mouth, day to day. And by the way, you can be middle class and in debt and live hand to mouth and day to day. But they had another word that meant absolute dependence on others for your existence. That's this word. Poor in spirit here means an absolute dependence 
on others for your existence. It's the picture, the best illustration in the New Testament is Lazarus in Luke 16, who had to be dumped at the doorstep of the rich man every day and depend on the crumbs to come out of the kitchen off the leftovers and to have his wounds licked by a dog. He couldn't do anything for himself to help himself to change his environment. He was an absolute beggar. He was destitute. It means to live off the good graces of other people because you can't do anything for yourself. The poor in spirit are those who cannot change their condition. Now you see where we're going when we talk about spiritual matters. Let me give you three characteristics of beggars. Number one, they are aware of their need. They are aware of their need. A true beggar someone who cannot change their condition is aware of their need. When we were in New York, it was at night about 15, 17 degrees, and Friday night in particular, I remember the wind was about 30 miles an hour, wind chill was about 20 below, and I just want to tell you, for a boy raised in Mississippi and living in South Georgia, I was cold. I just, I'm going to be honest, I couldn't get warm enough. I thought, dear Lord, thank you that saved people live below the Mason-Dixon line. (laughs) But I I remember on a couple of occasions walking by and when it was bitterly cold. You know, in the South, you know what we do. We have a freeze warning tonight. Get your pets and your plants in. I saw people on the steps of St. Patrick's and St. Thomas with a cardboard tent around them and newspaper over them for blankets. That's admitting a need. I'm sleeping on a street on cold concrete when the wind chill is 20 below and there's nothing I can do at this point in my life to change my condition. I'm stuck here. It's not cold, and so I've got to scrape some money together. I've got to check my credit card limit, see if I can go get a cheap motel with some kind of heater in it. I cannot change the condition that I'm in. We went and got breakfast one morning in a little deli on the street, and two men walked in, and they laid down. They went to the back of the deli, and they laid their heads on the table to sleep just so they could come in where it was warm. A beggar knows, I'm stuck here. I can't change this. Secondly, a beggar is dependent on someone outside themselves to survive. A beggar is dependent on someone outside themselves to survive. A beggar can't go down to Regions Bank or Security Bank and say, hey, I I need to get a line of credit here. I I need to see what kind of equity I've got in my house. Somebody's got to come do something for them. They have no collateral. They have no equity. They have nothing to offer. They have nothing to hold up and say, if you do this, I can do this. They have nothing to offer. They have to depend on somebody's good graces to survive. Guess what? That's what we did when we got saved. We had to admit our need, and we had to depend on somebody else to survive. Thirdly, they are honest about their condition. They are honest about their condition. You see, until you're broken and until you're honest, you can never change. I think one of the saddest stories that I've watched over this past year is the story of Robert Downey Jr., the actor. The guy is an incredible actor. I mean, he's not just a guy that's a script reader and he gets up and spouts off lines. When he plays a role, you believe him. I mean, he becomes the character he's playing. But you know what his problem is? He cannot get away from cocaine. He knows it. He can't get away. But he can't get honest. He's honest about it, but not honest enough to change. And he goes in jail, and he serves in jail, and he doesn't get his attention. And he goes right back in. You see, a person who is honest about their condition doesn't just say, Hi, my name is Michael. I'm an alcoholic. He goes to somebody who can help him with the condition he's just admitted. You see, there are a lot of people that could get help, but they're never going to be honest. 
By the way, do you know what an alcoholic is? This is the definition of an alcoholic. This is AA's definition of an alcoholic. An alcoholic is anybody that takes a drink at any time to change their mood. You want to know how many alcoholics there are in Albany, Georgia? Just go to the bars at happy hour. Anybody that takes a drink at any time is an alcoholic because they are depending on something to make them feel better or to change the way they feel about their circumstances. A beggar is somebody who is honest about their condition. It describes a person who is helpless in Hebrew and puts their whole trust in God. Psalm 34, 6, This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This beatitude could read, Blessed is a man who has realized his utter helplessness and has put his whole trust in God. Look at these different translations here. Phillips, happy are the humble-minded for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Rotherham, happy are the destitute in spirit. Bruce, who realize the destitution of their own lives. Williams, blessed are those who feel poor in spiritual things. New Century translates it, those people who know they have great spiritual needs are happy. I love the message here. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and His rule. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. You see, that's why most people who are saved are saved before they're 18 or 19 years old and why you find very few adults who get saved because adults never admit when they get to the end of their rope. They turn to alcohol, they look for another relationship, they try to go find themselves, they try to figure out how to work out their midlife crisis, but they will never admit they're at the end of their rope. He says, you're blessed when you admit that you're at the end of the rope. This is what it means, that I trust God for everything, and in fact, I even trust Him for the faith to trust Him. Now that's walking with God. Not only do I trust God for everything, Lord, I know that whatever I get, I have to receive from You. Lord, I, I know that I'm poor in spirit, but I even have to trust Him for the faith to trust Him. Because I'm like those disciples many times. Jesus could look at me and say, Oh, you of little faith. Lord, I've got to have the trust just to trust you. Now, the opposite of this poor in spirit mentality is pride. And pride is anti-God. It is an anti-God mentality. I love what Carl Sandburg says. Don't even get a mental picture of this one. The earth is strewn with the exploding bladders of the puffed up. There's a thought. Nelson Price in his book on supreme happiness says, on the shelves of the libraries of the world where there are books entitled Who's Who, there should be a book by it that says Who Was Who. Fifteen minutes of fame. Pride. When Benjamin Franklin listed his 12 virtues of what he thought were the, the greatest virtues for a good life, he put humility last. Jesus puts it first. Jesus says the beggars in spirit will be blessed. He's not talking there about a poor self-image. He's not talking about being a wimp. He's not talking about walking around and saying, oh no, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Please, I'm not worthy. I'm not. He's not talking about this cowardly lion approach to life. What he's talking about is an admission, I cannot survive without outside help. I need the Lord to take over my life because I can't do this on my own. I have nothing in myself to commend me to God. I, I, I can't come to Him. It is a realization that salvation is by faith alone. It is a realization that sanctification is by faith alone. It's not that I get saved by faith and then I work myself into God's presence. I am saved by faith and I am sanctified by faith. Lord... I don't have anything to bring to the table. I'm spiritually bankrupt. All my righteousness is as filthy rags. Look at the notes. Isaiah said, I am undone. Job said, Behold, I am vile. The publican said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Paul said, O wretched man that I am. Now let me tell you the key to this for those of us who are Christians, and I'm assuming most of us here tonight are. You never outgrow this beatitude. 
It's not that when I was 19 years old, I came to the realization that I could not save myself and being a, a kid raised in a Baptist church and baptized when I was nine wasn't going to get me to heaven. It's not that I'm going to be a good kid and my youth minister thinks I'm a good kid and, and then all of a sudden I realized I needed to be saved and I came to Christ, but now it's up to me. You don't outgrow this. Poor in spirit is the mentality and frame of mind for the rest of our lives. Not just when we're saved. You see, that brokenness and that helplessness and that humility that we felt at the moment when we realized we could not save ourselves and we needed Christ to come in and change our lives and to save us and that release that we felt from realizing, I, I don't have to do this. God's already done it for me. That is a process that begins and continues through all our lives. It just never stops. The Laodiceans reached a point and Jesus condemned them because they said, oh, we're rich and in need of nothing. And sometimes what happens to us, the longer we get saved and the, the more church offices we get and the more verses we memorize and the more Bible study certificates we get and the more uh, things we've done, we begin to think that we're doing God a favor by serving Him. And that's not it at all. What it is, folks, is that every time we get up in the morning, we're amazed that God would choose to save us, that God would choose to love us, and that God would choose to use us. Because He didn't have to. He didn't have to. You don't outgrow it. Now look at the promise effect. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is emphatic. What he's saying there, it is theirs and theirs alone. It's very simple. The only people that get to heaven are those who get to the point admitting I'm poor in spirit. I cannot save myself. I can't change myself. I can't not do this. I am destitute. I am desperate. I am helpless. I'm a beggar. I need Christ. And it doesn't matter how many times you've walked an aisle. It doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized. It doesn't matter how many times you've redecorated your life. It doesn't matter how many times you said you're going to be sincere. It doesn't matter how many times that you've told somebody you're going to do better. It doesn't matter how many times that you've done anything. What matters is have you come to the point in your life where you've realized, I can't do this. Have you come to the point in your life where you've realized if Jesus Christ by His blood, does not save me, I cannot be saved. It's not me plus Jesus. It's not me plus baptism plus faith. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what washes away our sin. And by the way, that's what keeps it away too. The blood of Jesus we need at the moment of salvation, the blood of Jesus we needed today because it is the atoning work of Christ that makes us approved in the eyes of God. It's not us. I, I've met people who think because I'm a Baptist, I'm approved in the eyes of God. There are going to be a lot of Baptists in hell. There are going to be a lot of people in a lot of denominations in hell. Being in a member of a denomination, you know, it's not we're the denomination. Well, really, I didn't find that in my Bible. Which denomination did you find? And I've heard say, well, we go back to John the Baptist. Oh, please. Does that mean you never take a bath and you wear camel hair? I've met some Baptists who stink. No, no, no. It, it, it's a simple admission. God, I'm in trouble. And I'm lost. And if you don't change my life, I'm going to go to hell. I cannot save myself. I cannot work myself into heaven. I cannot be good enough. I am desperate and destitute. I stand at the gate of heaven with nothing to offer Jesus except my poor, wretched life. You know, we took that hymn and we took out that phrase, for such a worm as I. And the people who changed the words of that hymn said, such a worm and I doesn't help people with their self-image. Oh, please. 
hey, I, I shouldn't have a great self-image when I know what I did to Jesus. The only reason I should have a self-image is because I know what Jesus did for me. My self-image does not come in what I look like, what I have, or what I do, or what my gifts are. My self-image comes from the fact that in spite of the fact that I had nothing to offer Him, Jesus said, I will give you everything I've got. That's where my self-image comes from. That's where my self-worth comes from. Not for me, because what I have can be taken away. Whatever talent I have, I can lose it. Whatever gifts I have, they can be destroyed. Whatever possessions I have, I can lose those. I have nothing to give to God except to stand at His gate and say, God, I can't get in. And He says, I know you can't. What do I have to do? Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Lord, if I'm ever going to get to heaven, it's going to have to be through Jesus because I can't do it. Being born in a Baptist home didn't do it. Being baptized didn't do it. I can't. I have nothing to give you. And guess what? Here's the great exchange. When you admit I have nothing to give to Jesus, Jesus says, now guess what? I've got everything to give to you. Because I'm going to take your nothingness and I'm going to give you my essence of my spirit. I'm going to take what you can't give and I'm going to give it to you freely, abundantly. He says theirs emphatically. Right now, present tense, theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is a promise and a warning. First of all, it's a promise to those who have reached the end of their rope, who reached the end of their resources. I've talked to people who say, well, I, I just can't be saved. I, I'm just not good enough. Great. You're right in a position where we can do something about this now. <laughs> you have reached the point now where you can be. And it's a warning. It's a warning to those who think they can earn their way into heaven. The greatest illustration of this, and you may just want to write just a reference and look at it later, the greatest illustration of this I know is, is found in 2 Kings chapter 7. Remember when the Syrians had surrounded Samaria and they were starving the city out. And everybody thought they were going to die. The, Samar the, the, the Syrians were going to take over. Samaria was going to be destroyed and overrun. They were just waiting their time. And there were four lepers. And those lepers said, you know, we can sit here and die. We're going to die anyway. We're lepers we can't do anything. We're unclean. Nobody will associate with us. Nobody will spend time with us. Nobody will touch us. Nobody will help us. We're going to die anyway. At least let's not starve to death. Maybe we could go over to them and maybe they would feel sorry for us and give us something to eat. And so these lepers crawl, hobble, however they get there, having lost their extremities, their fingers or their toes or their hands or whatever they had lost in this leprosy, they make their way to the Syrian camp. And you know what they found? Everybody was gone. God had scared the entire army away in the middle of the night, and here are four lepers, you know, don't have any fingers to pick up anything with, don't have any toes on the end of their feet. I mean, they've got nothing. Nobody will talk to them. Nobody will fellowship with them. Nobody will feel sorry for them. They've never had anybody hug them. They don't have anybody that loves them. And here they are, and they're crawling around from tent to tent with no limbs, with no extremities, and they're just crawling around, and they're surrounded by gold and by silver and by food and by blessings, and they look around, and they didn't do anything to deserve it. They didn't win anything. They went pleading for mercy hoping for grace. And guess what they stumbled up on? A gold mine. A gold mine. And they realized that all the people that were sitting there thinking, we can wait this out, we can wait this out, we're missing it. So they went and told them the good news. You know what I am? I'm a beggar who cannot climb his way to God. And one day... God said, if you get desperate enough, why don't you come and see what I've got for you? And when I got there, I found that all the riches in Christ Jesus were mine and that I could reign with him 
and rule with him and be a part of the priesthood of believers and that I could be a part of a kingdom of priests, I found that everything I wanted to get on my own, God had already provided for me, but I had to be desperate enough to go to him. And they found everything. You see, I'm not a child of earth trying to get my way into heaven. I'm a child of heaven trying to work my way through earth. And folks, the thing that we need to do is we need to be a more grateful people that God took us when we were poor in spirit and did not look down on us and say, you got yourself in this mess, you get yourself out of it. When we admitted that we were poor in spirit, he said, welcome to the kingdom of heaven, present and future. That's what God's got for us. Would you pray with me? I want to ask you right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you just look in your spiritual mirror, whether you've been saved a week, 10 years, or 50 years, would you just right now just say to the Lord, Lord, I'm still poor in spirit. We're impressed with our talents. God's not impressed with them. We're impressed with our abilities. God's not impressed with that. We're impressed by our personalities. God's not impressed with that. The only thing God's impressed with is people who are like Jesus. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. You know why Jesus was exalted? Because he humbled himself. You know how you gain influence in this world? Humility. Not by demanding your rights. There's so many people in this world demanding their rights and demanding their way and demanding fairness and demanding equality. I want to tell you something, folks. The way that you get all that is by humility because God looks on people who are poor in spirit and He listens to their cries. Here's their desperation. I have never found God to be silent when I've been desperate. So would you just kind of look at your life right now and say, Lord, I want to be a climber with you. I want to be your climbing companion. And I want to know what it means to absolutely depend on you. To trust you not only for my salvation, but to trust you for my day-to-day living. We get up tomorrow and we try to do this, we'll blow it. Only Christ can do that through us. You see, it's never about you and it's never about me. It's always about Him. Now, I want to tell you, can you just see yourself right now like Lazarus sitting at the gate of the king? And I want to tell you something, you're still a beggar. I don't care if you are saved. Sitting at the gate of the king and honestly admitting I do not have within myself what it takes unless the king feeds me unless the king provides for me unless the king ministers to me unless the king empowers me I can't do it can't do what's expected I can't love my enemies. I can't forgive people. I I can't do all these things in the Christian life. Congratulations, you've just gotten honest enough to admit your situation. Now God can begin to work.
wonder if there's anybody here tonight that you may have been baptized, you may have walked the aisle, you may have made a decision, you may even know the day that you made the decision, but you know in looking in your heart there's never been a moment when you've trusted Jesus Christ because you were absolutely desperate and destitute. And you knew there was no other way to salvation. There was no other way to heaven apart through Jesus Christ. You had nothing to offer him. You may be young or you may be old. You may be a member or a non-member. You may be a first-time guest. You may not be affiliated with any church. But is there anybody here tonight that just by raising a hand says, I, I need to trust Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Would you just raise your hand and just hold it there for a second? I need to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. Anybody else? Here's what I want to ask you to do. I didn't ask you to do that to embarrass you in any way. But I'm going to ask Andy and I'm going to ask Tony to come down. And I'm going to ask uh, David to come. And those of you that raise your hand, we're praying for you right now. There are people all over this room praying for you right now. I want to just ask you, don't leave this room tonight and not have this settled. Don't leave this room tonight and let the devil beat you up anymore. Don't leave this room tonight not knowing for sure that if you were to die today that the kingdom of heaven would be yours or not. I want to ask you, those of you that raise your hand, I'm just going to ask you to just stand up where you are right now and just make your way down here. We're not going to sing. People are praying. There are hundreds of people praying for you right now. They don't even know who you are. Would you just do that? Not for me. Would you do it for yourself? Admit, Lord, I need help. I, I'm, I'm destitute. Heather's going to play. We're going to wait for a moment. I'm going to ask nobody be looking around. And I want to ask you if you raise your hand, and if that's your condition, if that's your need tonight, then tonight could be the life-changing moment of your life. Not religion but a relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you let him do it right now? You come on right now.